I'm Stuart Chittenden, and this is Lives, a conversation featuring fresh voices and diverse perspectives on culture, community, business, and more. My guest today is Michael Dixon, President and CEO of the Unimed Corporation. Our conversation is being recorded today by Zoom. Support for this show comes from the Greater Omaha Chamber of Commerce. We don't coast, we accomplish more together. Details at omahachamber.org. Dr. Michael Dixon is President and CEO of the Unimed Corporation, a company that works with faculty, students, and staff of the University of Nebraska Medical Center, the University of Nebraska at Omaha, and Nebraska Medicine to help commercialize innovative new ideas that have the potential to improve public health for Nebraska residents and beyond. Dr. Dixon's tenure at UNMC began in 1998 when he joined the Epley Institute for Research in Cancer and Allied Diseases. In 2003, with a move that transitioned him from the bench to the business side of science, Dr. Dixon joined the UNMC Technology Transfer Office and began working with researchers to protect and develop new technology. Under his leadership, Unimed has more than doubled the number of new inventions and licenses it executes each year. In addition, Unimed revenues have increased tenfold. As an active member of the community, Dr. Dixon serves on several boards, including BioNebraska, a nonprofit trade association dedicated to the development and growth of Nebraska's bioscience industry. Dr. Dixon, welcome to the show. Hi, thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. This sounds excitingly 22nd century in many ways, but before we get to the 22nd century, I think, I think we need to just start with what is Unimed? Uh, could you sort of give us the basic description of what it does? Yeah, yeah. Our, uh, our elevator pitch on it, it it's really the, the entity that helps bridge um, between research here in the academic sector and the business sector, which develops uh, new ideas into products. So our, our goal at Unimed is really to, to help make sure that the new discoveries that come out of research, which is an incredible engine here at, at the medical center and, and at the University of Nebraska, um, a lot of federal grants, a lot of research developing great new ideas, but to, to get those ideas into things that sit on the shelves and, and help people, there's a lot of development and, and we need to get them out of academia and into the marketplace. And so our job is, is really to help um, collaborate and package the technology so that companies can develop it into products. So our goal is, is really to be that application to help groups develop the applications for the, the research so that they become products. How does that process work? And I, am, I imagine it's fairly complicated and involved. Well, it, it, it's, um, it's an interesting blend of, of science, business, and, and legal. And, and if you'd ask me what, if you asked 14-year-old Michael Dixon what he's going to do when he grew up, it, it probably wouldn't have been this. I didn't know it existed. In fact, even when I was in graduate school getting a PhD, it wasn't something on my radar right away. Um, I had a, a mentor who actually had some new inventions and was looking at commercializing that it piqued my interest. And as I learned more, it really, I was drawn to it because I was always interested in, in you know, science, but I, I was really interested in, in science that helped people and I wanted to be a part of it. And so, you know, looking at what we do and, and how we do it, it it's really taking you know, you have that fundamental knowledge of science and understanding how it works, but then really applying some of the business logic and, and some of the, the legal logic that, that needs to go along with it to help package things and, and put them into um, the right entities so that they can be developed. And so um, the team here at Unimed has um, expertise in all those areas. We have scientists, um, we have attorneys, and, and we have business folks, and, and most of us cross-train now in, in several disciplines. And, you know, we work with the faculty, we speak their language, we're, we're reading journals and we talk science, but we also, you know, sit down with business folks and we understand the business side of science. So we can help um, uh, make sure that whatever we're developing, you know, from the university is, is packaged well for business. And one of the ways we do that is, is through intellectual property. We, we patent things here. And so 
there was a, uh, a law back in the 1980s that allowed us, uh, allowed universities to have uh, retained title to inventions that were federally funded. And that, that really opened the door for universities to start patenting technologies and then licensing them to companies so that they could leverage them to, to build products. And the reason that's really important is for, for most of our discoveries, especially in, in biotech, it's um, millions, if not billions of dollars to take it from idea to product. And, and for a company to invest, they've got to have some sort of um, market exclusivity for a while or a patent. And so those patents really enable us to, to entice companies to invest um, the billions of dollars it takes to build the next cancer therapeutic or cardiovascular drug. And so it's really critical for us as we work with faculty to make sure that we can get patents and that there is a market for the technology. We'll, we'll go about doing that. And then we work with companies to transfer that knowledge and the, the intellectual property to them. Um, on, and hopefully if it's successful, they return some profits and, and we're able to put more money back into research and, and the whole process starts all over again. If I start with, as you call it, the bench. Um, so if I'm a medical researcher, I would imagine that my thinking isn't um, I'm going to research something that, uh, that that has commercial viability. Like they're probably looking at like a medical issue that they're trying to solve. How do they go about sort of identifying what that should be and receiving whatever revenues they get to do that research? And, and then how do you go about looking at what these researchers are doing and understanding, oh, the, these are the ones that we think we should be pursuing some kind of commercial market for? Yeah, great question. Um, so it's it's really interesting. I, I think um, research has has definitely um, grown, and, and with that, there's a messaging coming from almost everyone that research really does lead the products, and people need to be aware. And so um, our chancellor does a, a really nice job when he speaks to faculty, saying our job isn't done when we get a paper or or stand on a podium and give a, a presentation at a big conference. Our job is done when the patients are better when we have an impact on people. And to have that impact, we really need to be doing research that leads to things that help people. And so, you know, there's fundamental research and we do a great job with that, but even in fundamental research, there's usually an, an end game somewhere. And, and so the faculty have a really keen awareness. Um, and the funding agencies are, are funding that research with the idea that, you know, at some point there, there are things that, that come out of it. So. Um, there's been an interesting shift in that, you know, fundamental research is great, but, but as you are doing this research, keep your eye on what are the potential for products. You know, we want to make sure as taxpayers that that research leads to things that makes us healthier or, or makes the world a better place. And so faculty are aware and they talk to us a lot. They come and say, hey, what do you think of this? You know, and, and they realize that, that they don't really know if it's patentable or if there's a market. And that's that's what we do. We start to look at it and we say, okay, let's identify what are the potential areas for patenting? What are the companies in the space? And, and really, how can we um, position this to, to move to market? And sometimes the technology is, is too early or um, it maybe isn't as competitive as, as something out there and, and we'll get feedback and then the researcher will go back and, and do it again. Um, but it's, it's really been amazing. You know, I've been doing this 20 years now. And, and when I was in graduate school, it, it probably wasn't first on, on everyone's mind. I think it's shifted now to where researchers really are keen to thinking, hey, I want my research to turn into something that helps people. And they're, they really are looking at, you know, they're understanding that to, to do that, um, I need to work with Unimed. I want to talk with them. I want to identify potential outlets, people that will invest in my technology to take it from a, an early, you know, this is cool to um, this is a product that's, that's sitting in the pharmacy shelf and, and helping people. Are we in danger of putting, or how do we put up guardrails to make sure we don't put the cart before the horse? So yeah. a researcher you know, comes up with ideas and then they can get commercialized and do good for the public. How do we make mm -hmm. sure that we don't actually let the market drive what the research is? Mm -hmm. So instead of looking at the public good, we're looking at where is the commercial market? How do we do research yeah. for that? Just how do we make sure that we're getting this balance right? Yeah. Yeah, so I, I would say all all research builds on something, and so even even research that doesn't have immediate commercial potential um, builds to to make a new research, which which does, and um, ultimately it's it's really the funding agencies which dictate that. So for us, the NIH um, is is the big funded agency that sets the the agenda for what we're doing research on, 
And so they're identifying where are the major areas we want research and, and what are the projects. And that goes through a, a peer review process that's focused solely on the science, not on, on the commercial potential. So um, of the, you know, 150 to $200 million of research that goes on in our campus each year, the majority of it is, is federally funded, um, peer-reviewed research, which um, is, is coming from, from that NIH. We're interested in, in these areas. The discoveries that come out of that um, are, are where Unimed starts to pull those out and say, okay, this discovery came out. We're going to move this forward. There's still a significant amount of research that is, um, uh, we'll call it a knowledge product. And, and that knowledge product is, is something we publish put out to the research community. We talk about um, it's, a lot of it's very early or some of it's, some of it's fundamental, um, making sure that we understand mechanisms. And those mechanisms aren't, aren't patentable or aren't really protectable, but they lead to the next generation drug discovery, molecules, biomarkers, which potentially have um, the ability to become a diagnostic or a therapeutic that has that potential. Those therapeutics can't be created without that fundamental knowledge. And, and the NIH realizes that they fund that research in that area so that the next generation, um, the next research proposal can build on it and, and ultimately turn into something that has an impact uh, on the patient. It feels to me as if in some way you are encouraging a spirit of innovation and entrepreneurship in a discipline that may have seen itself really pretty rigidly as scientists and, and, and medical providers. But I, I don't know if that's true. So are you sort of inculcating with your partners this, this sense that we're entrepreneurs? You, you know, that's actually one of our goals is to, and not, not the entrepreneur in that I'm starting a company and I've, I've got an LLC. But I'm entrepreneurial and, and that we're, we're finding new ways to do things and we're developing and we're really pushing the envelope to get to that next stage. And, and faculty, I, I, I often view faculty as entrepreneurs. They, they all run their own little companies. They run labs. They hire people. They manage their budgets. They really are CEOs of, of little mini corporations all over and they don't know it. But they are entrepreneurs, and, and our goal is is really to help continue to foster that, and and not only you know getting grants and and developing the research, but trying to help them find ways that that research continues to move on that development path, so it it can become a product. The nice thing is the NIH and the others they fund that that base research, which is vital. But as that product develops along along a, a development pathway, that's that's really where the funding drives up or, or it gets more difficult to, to identify. And so that's where we try to help identify, is it venture money that comes in? Is it, you know, SBIR grants? Are there other proof of concept or development grants that we can help with? Because um, the the NIH and the, the, the federal funding sources really are, are more for that early discovery, that, that philosophical inquiry, the knowledge products, as we move along in development, it gets less interesting to the NIH. It gets more interesting to, to some of our venture partners that want to see an advanced product so that they can start to say, what's the commercial potential? And so we're here to help um, bridge that gap, uh, chasm between discovery and, and a product and, and see if we can find the resources necessary to help um, help bring those along. And it, it's, it's going to be entrepreneurial for the faculty, for us, for the institution to try to find a way to make that happen. We're recording this as we're sort of emerging, uh, at least America and some of the Western world is emerging from the pandemic, uh, we hope, although other parts maybe you're experiencing maybe worse to come. Who uh, At this point, it's hard to know. But we uh, can certainly see that vaccines are the tools by which we're going to hopefully get us through this, this trauma that we've experienced across the world. 
the rapidity of that, of course, is stunning. But but the idea of researching our way with massive, massive public support to a product that literally can go into arms, maybe a really good example to people if, if they think about, you know, turning research into, you know, a public good, as it were, in the marketplace. But I'm wondering if you have a good example, a favorite example that perhaps illustrates the, you know, a, a case study, as it were, for Unimed. We're a younger, you know, institution, so we, we don't have a lot of therapeutics. We've had a few devices and, and some other technologies. I, there is one therapeutic that I'm always um, excited to talk about, and um, one of the the interesting aspects of the therapeutic is is that we actually donated it to an entity to develop, and and the reason is it it's a malaria drug, and if you take a look at the market for malaria drugs in the U.S., it's it's very small. And so there's not really money in malaria drugs, but the research was fantastic and it, it was a drug that had a lot of potential. And so what we did rather than license it to a big pharma company that would develop and hopefully make a lot of money is we licensed it to a not-for-profit entity that was helping to develop in combination with some WHO and, and some pharma partners, but they were very um, the philanthropic arm of the pharma partners. And so it put together a consortium to develop this malaria drug that Dr. John Venestrom created several years ago, decade ago. It's been developed now. The first iteration uh, was approved in 2012 in India for malaria. And there's a um, probably more exciting, there's a second generation of the drug that John has, has had a, a hand in developing and, and this group is, is continuing to work on. It's in phase 2B or, or 3, I believe, that has the potential to be a one-dose cure for malaria. And if we look at diseases that really are um, a global impact, malaria is number one. I, I joke, I tell my kids, you know, the most, most dangerous animal on the planet, and they you know, say shark or tiger, and I say, no, it's a mosquito. Mosquitoes kill via malaria half, of, half a million people a year. The potential to have a one-dose cure, which is, which is really the, the big challenge of malaria, is getting the, the medicine to where people need it and to have enough efficacy so they don't have to take a regimen of pills for, for weeks at a time, is really important. And so this is, this is work that came out of um, UNMC. Uh, it, it's progressing along. It, it takes decades for this work to occur. Um, but it's, it's really exciting. And it was just identified a few years ago as, as one of the top 30 innovations for global health, along with, you know, long acting HIV and, you know, some of the, the CRISPR technologies and, and some of the really cool stuff that's won Nobel Prizes. Our, our malaria drug was identified as, as one of the top um, candidates to improve global health. And I think if, if, you know, we look at our mission and say, we want to have an impact, you know, there's probably no bigger area to have an impact than, than there. Now, I'd, at some point, I'd love to have an impact in a field that brings back millions of dollars so that we can have new research buildings and hire more researchers and, and do all those, those things that we want to do on the research side. But from an impact standpoint, I'm, I'm really, really proud to have worked with Dr. Benestrom and, and to have been a, a small part, a very small part in what is um, this potential uh, therapeutic moving on. joking at the top about the 22nd century um but but really is at the vanguard of change yeah. and so what are you seeing like well, what should what might we i mean <laughs> we won't hold you to this yeah. but you know crystal balling it what what are you seeing <laughs> what's new what's coming uh, yeah so i i mean that and if you know people have asked me what's what's the best part of your job it's, it's exactly that it's seeing the next generation of, of technology that's potentially there and it's way too early to know if it'll work if it'll be effective all et cetera et cetera but 
the ability to to do um, some of the things that we're doing now with with um, uh, the the CRISPR technology is, is a great example. The ability to to manipulate and to knock in, knock out, bring genes in and out um, like this is is really science fiction from when I was in grad school or even just you know a decade ago. And so it's it ushering in a whole new era of, of potential technologies. I think the mRNA vaccines that Moderna and others have, have worked on for a long time and have deployed in, in less than a year um, are fundamentally going to change how we see vaccines in the future. I, I was just talking with a vaccine uh, company CEO a, a few months ago, and they're all in on this new technology and, and said, this is really what they're going to see in the future. It's going to be quicker vaccines. They're going to be more effective and they're going to be easier to deploy. Um, we're seeing, uh, you know, some long acting, we have some long acting HIV drugs. And uh, a few years ago, we actually were able to eradicate HIV in animal models, which has been unheard of. Um, you know, and again, it's, it's early stage, it's in an animal model. But if you start to think of the ability to provide a drug or a combination of drugs and eliminate HIV, this is, this is science fiction five or 10 years ago, and, and we're doing it in animals right now. Um, the, the CAR T work and the immunotherapy for cancers that we're seeing is is really um, something I wouldn't have predicted 10 years ago. Um, there were huge challenges in harnessing the immune system and going after cancer cells, which are essentially your own cells, in, in a lot of challenges. But the the genetic engineering and the ability to manipulate these these um, specific cells and to to send them just target them very specifically has been phenomenal. And the outcomes, you know. Well, I, I can't say curing. It's it's definitely making um, an impact in several cancers that we were really struggling with, and so I I um I am incredibly optimistic uh, for a lot of diseases that I think are are challenging now and not necessarily cures, but but definitely uh, making way of life better, um, helping people. Just today, we heard there's a new Alzheimer's drug that that's being approved, the first one since 2003. Um, and that's a, another disease we've worked a lot on. We've got a lot of research on and as have a lot of other places. And there's some really exciting new um, strategies that are, are being deployed and, and some have incredible efficacy. Um, Parkinson's saying we've, we've got work in that space too. You know, combining some of the personalized medicine, we are looking at biomarkers and specifically identifying what drugs work with that combination of biomarkers. Some of the, the scientific shows that I watched as a kid um, almost seemed like reality now, which, which is a little scary and, and really exciting. You know, I think over the next 10 to 15 years, we're going to see that personalized therapeutics. We're going to see a, a greater ability to target. We're going to see, a, um, I think, less of the broad, you know, hammers and, and more of the scalpels that are going to be used to identify and specifically go after uh, some of the more challenging diseases that we've had. And, and you know, if, if everything works out well, which, which it never does, but if it does work out well, I think we're going to see some really amazing drugs in, in the next 10 to 15 years. a lot of smart people doing a lot of difficult uh, work, sometimes probably very frustrating, sometimes it takes a long time. Um, you probably have a whole bunch of really strong personalities and some big egos uh, in, in the field that you collaborate with. You're heading up a really important organization that has to work with a lot of other organizations with a lot of smart people with a lot of you know, passionate interests. How do you build a culture at Unimed that, that sort of brings together the scientists, the venture capitalists, the lawyers, and the medical providers and the entrepreneurs? How do you bring yeah. that culture together? Yeah, I, I think there's there's not only a lot of, of egos, there's there's probably a lot of money involved with the egos. And so that that makes a recipe for for some challenging discussions. I think 
I, I think we've always approached it from the aspect of, you know, do the right thing. And, and that's, that's where, you know, we're, we're always feel like we're on the side of, we want to see our technologies move to products and those products to help people. And as long as we can stand behind that mission, every action we're taking is, is moving us towards that. It's hard to argue um, with, with that philosophy. Um, I think there's, there's a lot of, challenges when there's so much money being invested. There's a lot of expectations that, you know, we'll have all rights and we'll be able to lock things up. And, you know, that's some of our challenges is, you know, uh, a company is going to invest $10 million, um, but they only want to develop one thing when there's potentially 10 things that can come out of it. Those are really hard conversations because we're, we're pretty passionate that we want to see all 10 things developed if possible. And so, you know, if it requires us to, to you know, um, take another partner, develop in a different direction, sometimes we have to do that. You know, I think staying true to your mission, being able to wake up every day and know that the work you're doing is leading to new drugs, it's helping people, is really motivating. And it, it um, helps us, I think, uh, stay focused on the task at hand and not get caught up in the small little things that, that swirl around all the time. Um, there's there's always a, a new fire somewhere, but but ultimately, as long as we're we're continuing to move this along, it's it's the greater good, I think, and and that's really helpful. It, it, I know it's it's motivated me for a lot of years, and most of the team that that's here with me at Unimed has been here ten or more years, a, a lot of them, and so I think having that mission um, associated with your cultures is really really big and really really important for us. You know, working working in a company that just has one drug, I'm sure is really exciting. But it wouldn't quite have that same flair that, that you have working in academia and you're working with the really early stage technologies and you've got all the, the really successful professors that are CEOs of their own little labs and doing really well and trying to work with, you know, large biotechs and pharma companies and venture capitalists that all have their own expectations. Um, I really see us as the collaborator that brings them all together and, and helps make the deals happen. And so... You know, if, if that's our role, um, I'm really happy that, that we're able to provide it. We don't ultimately we don't need to sit in front of the cameras and say, hey, what? Look at us. We did a great job. We just need to sit back and say, we know we helped get that that research or that device into a spot where it can be made in, in helping people. And that's that's really the, the goal that we're looking for. You're very much involved with, and many of your stakeholders are involved with day-to-day care in deeply distressing, traumatic times. And so I'm wondering how you as a leader of, of you know, an organization that contains real people who are uh, trying to live their lives and do their work, um, as well as the business that you're having to conduct too, how did you cope and adapt and pivot with, you know, the pandemic? What were yeah. the challenges and, you know, kind of what, what did you do? First, we were... Um, right away, uh, kind of neck deep in the pandemic, because one of the outcomes of, of the pandemic was a lot of really good ideas to deal with it. So interestingly, we, you know, we track inventions every quarter, and we had two quarters that were relatively routine. Uh, the pandemic hit, and we had two of our highest invention quarters we've ever had in the history of Unimed. We we broke records both quarters, and. When we went back and looked, the majority were COVID-related inventions. There were new diagnostics. There were new isolation tools. They were, you know, a whole host of, of pieces. You know, we felt the real mission that we want to try to, to get these technologies to the market as quick and, and as easy as possible. So one of the things that we did, and we can do this since we're a little separate, is we actually started just selling at cost some of the isolation barriers that, that our physicians made. We sourced them locally developed them. We had, uh, we had, we had people from just regular people running them across the state for us to deliver them to hospitals to, to help the anesthesiologists that were intubating. There was a collapsible shield. Um, you know, from, from a patent perspective, we, nothing we'd ever patent, but it's, it's a, it was a product that we wanted to get available. And we probably got, I think we opened them up. We, we got the invention. We said, let's make it available. We, we set it up. And within 48 hours, we had shipped to both coasts in Texas, uh, as well as greater Nebraska. Um, so we, there's probably two or 300 that we sent out. And, and, you know, specifically New York got a bunch because that was right in the midst of, of the, the big group there. So, you know, from that mission to how do we help people to how do we help with the pandemic, it felt like we were doing something positive. You know, it, what 
what we could do to help move these some of these inventions so that they'd help people. And and we so that felt good. From a you know culture standpoint, you know, we we went remote like everyone else. And and I think we learned a lot um through that process. So we've all been fairly independent you know, licensing and the marketing and, you know, a lot of what we do, um, we're, we're meeting with people a lot. We're talking on the phone, we're meeting people in person. And, and so while everything moved to Zoom, we could do these meetings anywhere. And so um, I think a lot of our team learned we don't need a physical office. We're, we're good where we're at. We, we like talking to each other. We missed that part of it. And so we set up weekly meetings and, you know, we'd, we'd have small huddles within our groups. But, but for the most part, we found we were maybe more effective um, remote than we were, you know, coming to an office, you know, eight to five every day. And so what that means for the future, I, I'm not sure. Um, I know we're going to be really flexible. We're going to continue to be this way. Uh, and we're going to, you know, probably have more in-person meetings as, as things open back up and develop. But but honestly, we we're going to be really flexible about having um, a work from home, which we'd always had. We had never really um, pressure tested. We always had several people that could if they wanted to. But I think ultimately it's helped with the culture. It's it's helped with the the mental health. I had a um, some of my colleagues that have said, you know, I felt better this year, like I was handling my work more effectively. Um, even you know, I, if there was a small task that needed to be done at the house, I'd do it, and then I'd be back at work, and I I was just more on top of both aspects of my life as opposed to always focused on one or the other. And so I, I think it, it led to a lot of insights like this is this is really, you know, something that we can do. And we need to look at doing this because we want to continue to, to make people feel good about the work they do here, but also feel good about the work they're doing at home and with their family. And so if we can create an environment where they, they feel good about both uh, work products going to be better and they're going to be happier, which is good for us. What did you learn about yourself? <laughs> I learned that I like the office. Um, so as, as much as I enjoy my family, um, I've got a, a six year old, a 10 year old, 13 year old, those, uh, those two months where they were working from, uh, doing school from home and I was at home too, I, I ended up taking several calls in my minivan just to hide, to get a little quiet time and, um, had uh, learned how to use the mute button better on zoom for sure. And it, you know, it was, I felt productive, but, but I, I do like my, I I'm, I'm someone that likes to have a space where I can get work done on, uninterrupted. And so I, uh, I do like the office. I'm one of those folks. Always waking up from a dream remembering how it felt to fall. What was your childhood like and what was Michael Dixon like when you were younger? <laughs> yeah, I was, you know, um, I grew up in, in South Central South Dakota, west of the river, so a real small town, had a, a dad who was a principal, a mom who was a teacher, so I grew up with a real academic background. You grow up in a small town, you play every sport in every season, so good friends, played a lot of sports. Um, didn't know what I wanted to do with my life at all. I uh, I got a, a scholarship to go to a small school in South Dakota, Northern State. So enjoyed my time up there a lot. I, I liked biology and chemistry a lot. But as I graduated, I realized you could do three things. You could you could sell things, you could become a teacher, or you could go on and get more more schooling. And um, I chose graduate school in, in part because um, I, I, I wanted to continue science, but I, I learned they would actually pay you to go to graduate school, which was a huge thing for me. That's fantastic. I can, I can get a PhD and earn money. This, this seems wrong. 
Um, so, so I, um, I, I came down to the cancer center here and I, I really fell in love with all the people, um, and enjoyed the research about halfway through my research. I realized, I don't know if I'm that good of a scientist. Um, I like science, but I'm, I'm not the guy that likes to go 10 miles deep. I enjoy going wider. And so I, I really started trying to identify what are things where I could stay wide being science, but, um, still be successful. And, and so, um, finding this field, finding this profession was, was a little bit of luck. And quite honestly, the, the best thing that could ever happen to me, because I get to, I get to work in a field where all the science we see is successful. You can ask a lot of researchers, the, the majority of scientists fail the majority of time. So, if, you know, a good scientist only fails, you know, 95% of the time, not 98% of the time. And, you know, working with only that 5% that's working well, it's like, it's like a kid that's only eating candy all the time. It's fantastic. Or it's what I enjoy. And so uh, it gives us an opportunity to work with the best science that's, that's working great. Everyone's excited about it. And it, there's a, an air of enthusiasm always. Um, you know, if you go into a, a standard lab, there's usually a lot of troubleshooting and saying, okay, why didn't that experiment work? That's not what we deal with. We only deal with the stuff that's, uh, hey, this this worked great. Look at the results. This new biomarker is fantastic. Things like that. So, uh, yeah, as a as a 14 year old, um, I, I think I probably just wanted to go go play in the NBA or something, which it wasn't going to happen. So, with trial and error comes a large amount of uh, call it what you will. Uh, two sides of the same coin. A lot of failure. A lot of learning. What are the lessons from your own sort of more clinical background, your own sort of more um, scientific background, sort of at the bench or studying biology, studying chemistry, maybe applying that as you did in the Eppley Institute for Research in, in Cancer? What lessons did you learn there um, that you're able to bring into what in many ways is a, a sort of a venture capital entrepreneur commercializing field? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I, boy, you, I think you described it really well. Um, it's, it's failure, but you learn a lot from failure. And so there, there's a, a lot of, um, a lot of times things don't work and, and you have to figure out why and you have to troubleshoot and you come back and you re, either you're, you're rework your hypothesis or you're, you know, identifying where the, where you went wrong in, in your analysis. And, and so a lot of what I learned in, in graduate school and in doing my own research was just how hard it is and, and just, you know, how to analyze data. And, you know, as these things develop and, and come into to our shop, you know, we, we have to, to have that same critical ability to analyze data and, and really identify what the potential is for it. And, and maybe to ask the hard questions. Um, one of the things you, you learn doing research is that, that every answer begets three more questions. You know, not that we're here to, you know, to beat on, you know, new data and all that, but, but really to try to identify what are, what are the possibilities with that, to ask those questions and to maybe help predict where that future might go for the technology. Um, and that's really, you know, we take that into more of the commercial sense, like what, what's the potential for this? How can we develop it? What are the the options, whereas it may be in, in research, you're developing, okay, this is an interesting answer. What's the next question scientifically? And, and that's how scientists will continue to, to build more research in a big portfolio. We're looking to pull that out and to develop it just a little further down a specific product path. But there's, there's really some, some of the same questions that we learn to ask when we're doing research that we're developing here when we're looking at the commercial potential or or developing and 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 um, it gives us an opportunity to leverage some of those skills we learned as we got a PhD and apply them more towards the the business side of of it. In your bio, you reference Bio Nebraska. That just stood out to me just because um, droughts in uh, in Oregon, you know, more danger of wildfire. There's you know flooding elsewhere. So you know, climate change and issues of environmental degradation, sustainability, none of those hopefully are going to surprise anybody listening to this, that that's a major, major yeah. existential challenge for the world right now. Um, so what, what is Bio-Nebraska and how are you involved with that? What, you know, what, what's that all about? 
Yeah, so it's um, Bio Nebraska is the the trade association for for biotechnology or bioscience companies in Nebraska, and that's a big bioscience is a big word because it means agriculture, it can be chemicals, um, in in life science companies like like the ones we work with. And one of our goals, you know, here at Unimed is to see the technologies hopefully build into companies locally that can support the economy and grow Nebraska. And so one of the reasons why I've, I've been always been passionate about bio Nebraska is, is building that bioscience community here so that our graduates have jobs to go to, that we're building companies that have high wage, high growth potential that lead to economic impact, that, that make Nebraska um, that diverse um, economy that, that we want and, and need and hopefully solve, you know, a lot of the, the problems that you, that you talked about, you know, how can we work on technologies all the way from agriculture, that, you know, climate change to, to more of what I see here. And that's the therapeutics, diagnostics, medical devices that, that help make the world a better place. I love the economy to grow, but, but the more we can grow the bioscience economy, the, the, the more diverse the state is, the better it is for, for high wage, high growth jobs. And, and really just makes, you know, Nebraska a better place. It's a, a segment that I, I'm really trying hard to promote and to advocate for. Um, and we've got a, a great group of companies and it's been growing. Um, it's been growing well in the past 10 years. I'm, I've been really happy to see more companies locating here and developing and, and really pleased to see that um, we're showing up on more, you know, top places to, to start a biotech company, top places to grow your company. It's, you know, Nebraska is a, a great place. There's fantastic opportunities, and I'm, I'm really happy to get a chance to work with the other folks on that board that, that do a really wonderful job. With you as my love, I don't need nothing. Yeah, I don't. I'm wondering what role you see Unimed playing in sort of raising talent that's here, but also at the same time, pulling a really interesting, diverse array of, you know, smart people to contribute not only to those institutions, but to the community at large. We play a small part. I, I'd love to play a bigger part if, if we can. Um, but the the ability to, to pull in people from out of state that can build new new companies to help grow. Um, we've got a new innovation hub that we're going to be working on developing, which is, is going to give us some space to, to build and grow new companies um, and, and to really attract some venture dollars and, and to see more technologies come up and out. Um, I think you know, the university's greatest asset is, is always its students. Um, it's putting students across the state into healthcare jobs. It's, it's putting students into companies. And, you know, they're, they're the lifeblood of really the state's economy. Unimed is, is a small cog, but hopefully one that has high growth potential. So when we start a new company with a faculty or with an entrepreneur, you know, our goal is to see that company grow in, into a, a great big company with lots of jobs, and lots of products and generate lots of money for the state. And again, more jobs for, for students that can keep recycling and grow the university bigger because we've got more people in the state building more products and, and all that. So I think, you know, the majority of, of the students are, are going to jobs throughout the state and doing a great job. I think Unimed's role is, is really to make some of those, we take some of the big swings and, and try to build some companies that have incredible potential 
most are going to fail. I um, mean, we know that and venture capitalists know that. But if one or two succeed, they can fundamentally change um, the trajectory of big swaths of the state if we can get great big companies growing and succeeding here. I can't resist asking if there are any uh, venture capitalists with $100 million just that they want to throw at something, do you have something for them? We've got several things. Most most of our um, startups are raising the seed to A round. And so they're they're raising more the 500,000 to 2 million range. Um, but we've got uh, this last year, we did seven startups. So each one is, is at a, a different stage raising money, but they're doing a, a really nice job. I think we're going to see somewhere between five and, and seven to 10 startups a year moving forward. And, and we've got, um, we're getting more resources. The state is investing money in startups. They've got groups like Invest Nebraska putting money into high growth companies. And that makes a really big difference. Getting seed money, developing that idea into your prototype and, and starting to develop past that. Uh, the next thing you know, you're seeing um, large, large firms invest. Uh, the 50 to 100 million dollars. I, I think virtual incision is a great example. You know, they they've taken a long time. You know, they've got really cool technology, but they've they've raised you know a couple 20 million dollar rounds and and have the next generation of of surgical robots. You know, on the doorstep of of going to consumers or going to the physicians for consumers and and really having a, a great impact in their field. Um, there are vaccine companies that just not our technology, but like adjuvants down in, in Lincoln, Nebraska, developing some really cool vaccine technologies that are, are going to fundamentally, you know, change and, and have a, a potential huge impact also. Um, so I'm, I'm really excited about the industries here in Nebraska and some of the technologies that are developing. Um, I think there's, there's just amazing potential to see some really high growth companies in the next 10 to 20 years. Is there anything that you yourself kind of had a wish that this is the challenge that that you would love to see some innovation or breakthrough for just that would be you know truly transformational uh, for the world. It doesn't have to be something that Unimed is doing, but but something that would be you know that transformation that would be just game changing. An easy off-the-shelf answer are, are therapeutics for the the neurodegenerative diseases like Alzheimer's and Parkinson's. They've been it's been the holy grail for for pharma companies for for such a long time. But honestly, I I the potential I see you know what's what can be out there is, is some of the the work they're doing with the CRISPR technologies and and some of the companies developing the new gene delivery therapeutics that, um, you know, you look at, at diseases like cystic fibrosis and, and um, hemophilia, where you're, you're delivering genes and, and you know, uh, curing people, like a better word. It, it's, it's amazing. And you start to think of all the other diseases where, where there's some of, some of those challenges. We had a, um, a technology for juvenile Batten's disease, which is a disease I didn't know much about. Um, but it's, it's, you know, once I read about it and, and saw more, it, it's, incredibly terrible um and it, it's you know again it's an orphan disease so there's not a, a ton out there we developed a, a new gene therapy that's got incredible potential and the impact it has on these families is, is just phenomenal and so i tend to be more of a uh, a sucker i guess for for those type of technologies where um it, it just seems cruel uh to affect children like that and, and to have such a uh, such an impact Seeing technologies that that have um, the potential to reverse or or to ameliorate those those diseases um, for for me make a, just a huge huge difference. We've been talking about breakthroughs, so here you are coming up on twenty years as the head of Unimed, and um, I want to ask, what do you see as the next breakthrough for you? I think what I what I'd love to see here, and it, it's it's kind of I it's again, maybe an easier answer since I've been thinking about a lot is the, the development of, of it, this innovation district around our campus. Um, I, I feel like our research has always been so strong. One of the areas we've really lacked is, is a, a true innovation hub where we've got entrepreneurs and venture capitalists and companies all interacting. And so, you know, one of the things I'm, I'm really excited, passionate, um, just, just really um, can't wait to, to work on more is is the development of this innovation area so that we can grow that segment more. I think it's 
is an area that that will motivate, it will excite, and really um, hopefully boost more of the the development of, of new technologies and development. Because I I think you know as a medical center, I think we do a great job. We've got great research, but but it everyone we've lacked a space that we can call our innovation area. And the ability to to have this this area that's that's going to be focused on that, it's going to be developing, is, is really really exciting. Um, and it's something I I can't wait to I can't wait to have more of a role of of being involved with, so that we can see we can see more of these technologies get developed. So that's uh that's that's probably my best answer right now. It's a great answer. Thank you. My guest today has been Dr. Michael Dixon, President and CEO of the Unimed Corporation. Thank you so much for joining us on the show. Thanks for inviting me. It was a great discussion. Support for this show comes from the Greater Omaha Chamber of Commerce. We don't coast. We accomplish more together. Details at omahachamber.org. That's the end of this week's show. You can listen again to this show and others by subscribing to the podcast at livesradioshow.com and find us on social media at livesradioshow. The music playing you in and playing you out each week was created specially for the show by Andrew Bailey. I'm your host, Stuart Chittenden, and this is Live's radio show and podcast. Join me next week for fresh voices and diverse perspectives on culture, community, and more.